Dan. And I'm Mike. So welcome to 15 Minute Film Fanatics. You know how this works. Mike and I watch films separately, then talk about them on the podcast for the first time. This week we're going to be doing Leo McCarry's 1937 comedy. I guess it's a comedy. It's hard to know what to call it. Make Way for Tomorrow. This is a film I've been urging on Mike for weeks and weeks and weeks. Um, I watched it again. Mike just saw it. Mike, go. What's your overall take? This movie is a comedy like the Jonestown Massacre is a church picnic. Like, this is not a comedy. Um, It uses some of the grammar of comedy. So as they're walking down the street, he sees a sign which is like, this is the most indicative sign, the most indicative moment in the movie for me. He sees a sign called Man Wanted. And he, he tells his wife, he says, Ma, I got, I've got to just pop into the store for a minute. Uh, but you know he's going to go apply for a job to, to try to put off what's happening to them. Uh, and obviously the guy tells him he's too old and you know gently tells him to leave. So he comes back out and they stroll to the next window, which is a savings and loan. And it says, save now for your future. And he turns to her and he says, now they tell us. And so it uses some of the grammar of comedy, but it's only it's only the overarching dread of the situation or the, or the tension that, that leads them to this beautiful structureless wandering day uh, that they have at the end of the film that lends, that lends any comedy. So that this is really, if it's humor at all, it's a kind of very special gallows humor. Um, and I, I have a lot more to say about man wanted, but I do want to get your take on the movie. Yeah, I mean, there there are little comic moments, like what he says to the doctor, and I will not say that number. He still won't say the 99. So that that's about the most you're going to get. I saw this for the first time um, around Christmas because I had gotten a present of uh, of the Criterion Collection subscription. I had read about this film before. I just knew vaguely about it. I had never seen it. I went into it thinking it was going to be a comedy because of Leo McCarry, right? Because of his other films. And I walked out of the room and I was shaken up and I was, you know, your stomach hurts after a while after, after watching this. So certainly it, it's, it's hard to categorize it like a lot of the great movies we do on this show. I, I, I absolutely adore this movie. I think that there's so many ways it could have gone wrong. I mean, the, the, the characters are not figures of fun. It's not, it, they're not figures of like rank sentimentality. They're not senile. They're not foolish. They don't turn out to have a dark side. I mean, their, their kids may see them as star characters, but we certainly don't. Um, and I think that the movie doesn't have a clear, clear bad guy. Maybe it's Cora. She's a little selfish at things. And you are glad at the end when he tells them, we're not coming back to have your pot roast. We're going to have a better time at the hotel here. But you see such a, a, a great portrait of so many human beings trying to do the right thing and not really sure what to do. Yeah, there's there's something there's something beautiful in the ambiguity. But really, what this is about is this is like um, some movies have people in them. Italian neo neo realism has people in it. Other movies have characters in it. Classic Cary Grant comedies like the other movies. Um, Liam McCaffrey made all the truth. Yeah, they have comedies. Um, this movie tries to have man in it, and I mean man in the in the biblical sense, as in this is humankind. At its essence, at its element, the, the the horror of what's happening to this old couple is like it's like the radioactivity that allows you to 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 scan past the skin and see someone's skeleton and get a, a sense of what's going in. This yeah. is it's movie intended to do an X-ray, like, and part of that pressure is certain people are going to rise to the occasion and certain people are not, and it's it's amazing in that first scene where um the the brother that looks kind of like Andy Richter, I don't know the actor. Right. You know, it's, it's coming in and he's got like, he's got the plate of lemonade. Singing mother. 
Yeah. And, he, you know, he's he's singing and making an ass out of himself and, and handing everything out. And at that moment, everybody's on the level because you don't know or, or care about these characters. But what happens is through pressure, they kind of like they're shaken loose, like something kind of like in the middle of the ocean. And then the two parents start to float to the top and everybody else starts to settle. And it's only the, the pressure of that thing that that separates everybody and allows you to see man versus just people. Yeah. Uh, and. I don't know any other film that kind of works exactly in this way. This, it's, a, it's a very unique film. Absolutely. Uniqueness is true because, you know, you reminded me of that moment where he's singing, M is for the million things you gave me. He could sing all day, but they, they're all full of it. Because, you know, singing the song is one thing, but, but actually, you know, rising to the occasion of what you're going to do for your mother is, is another. Um, you know, it's also funny how the film keeps, keeps um, define your expectations. I don't know about you. Did you wonder? Did you have a moment where you thought they were going to get taken, quote unquote, in New York? Like they wouldn't be able to afford the restaurant bill or something like that. But like none of that stuff happens. Like they, they don't get into the classic, like, you know, old geezer figure of fun situations because they have it. They have a dignity that we'll talk more about later on, I think. So first, there's an obvious contrast with the way that the hotelier treats them, the way that the car salesman treats them. This, this is all intended to be somewhere between where the kids are. And where they are, if they're net, they, nobody else rises to where the, this yeah. couple is. Um, they, they might as well be Adam and Eve. They might as well be Adam and Eve in their old age. But but there's a spectrum of man in between the two of them, like the band leader who sees who sees them and changes the song because you know they can't samba but they can waltz. Right. Um, by creating the polar ends, you know you you get that broad spectrum. And I never I never expected this, but again, it's it's um. There's a gallows pleasure, right? If I only told you that you had two days to live, all the things that you care about right now, all the quotidian kind of concerns that you have obviously would disappear. And we've, some of us have kind of seen movies like that, um, where you get the freedom to like, I never did this. I never did, that, you know, bucket list movies. Right. And that's kind of, that's kind of what this is because when, when they separate out from the cares of the world, they get to experience life just like a couple on their honeymoon does, right? You, we all have that thing where you, you when you first came in, you take a break from life to experience life in one another, and then you get back into it. And that's why at the end, I'm not in the end, I'm sorry, but when they go to the, that last half hour or so when they're in New York, remember, Bark keeps looking at his watch. And she keeps saying, don't worry, it's fine, it's fine. So it's like they have this five hours. So it's like the Ray Bradbury story all summer and a day. They have, right. to, they have to do their whole marriage and all the reaffirming that they you, you'd want to send them around the world or something on their 50th anniversary. But they have to do that all in one day. And that gives it such an urgency because you kind of, you know, like the clock is literally ticking. The means by which they can say that to each other is only created by the urgency. And you can't have one without the other. Mm -hmm. And that's part of part of the thesis of the film. But what makes it unique is that um, we all expect to die. Um, that's one bad thing that happens. We all there's there's a million things in movies that we all expect, and this is playing out various scenarios for us. We do not all expect to be married for fifty years for the same person, and then one day have to separate from them and be and be told that you're going to stay here and I'm going to go thousands of miles away, where we can't where we can't see one another. That that is an unex it, that that's cruel and unusual. Where certain things that all humans expect showing up in films are not cool and unusual, but they are, um, they are full of sentiment. And to make that scene more cruel and unusual, I know we're jumping ahead here, but right before we go to part two, how about when the train pulls up and she says, Oh, it looks like a nice train. Oh, I hear they have good food on trains, trying to keep up their spirits right to the end where they really don't know if they're ever going to see each other again. There's no doubt they will not see each other again. Okay. Right, but I'll see you in part two. All right.
Welcome back, everyone. In part two, we talked about our favorite scenes or the ones that are indicative of the themes of the film as a whole. Dan, I think mine is after yours. You start. All right. Mine is when Lucy takes the phone call from Bark during the bridge lesson. So we've already had the squeaky chair. We've had her wandering in, things like that, right? What happens in that moment is so beautifully written and so beautifully acted and so wonderfully shot that it takes your breath away. And it takes away the breath of everybody in the film, too. So when they first see her, when all the people in their tuxedos having their sandwiches from the delicatessen, because they're fancier, um, as we know, when she gets on the phone, they kind of see her as a stock character. She's, she's a figure of fun. She's the shuffling old lady, right? But then what happens is the more they listen to her conversation, she shames them all into silence. They, they all start breaking eye contact with each other and they kind of look down. And I think that like the sheer sincerity of her concern for Bark, when she says things like, oh, you shouldn't have called. You could have taken that money and bought a scarf, right? It's so obvious to them that the relationship she has with her husband is so genuine and so overpowering that she kind of like stuns them into silence. And that happens over and over in the movie to, to everyone they come into contact with, except their kids, right? It happens to us with the viewer. Um, like when his friend Max, the guy that runs the candy store, he's reading the letter. And he kind of stopped and he says, I can't, I can't continue it anymore. Like he, he won't, he doesn't want to read what Lucy's written to him, right? Um, when the car salesman, when they tell him, no, we really didn't want to buy the car. He doesn't get mad. He doesn't have a David Mamet reaction or something like that. He's kind of touched by them. Like he really believes them. Um, they don't know what to order at the bar, right? And the bartender's like, well, how about an old fashioned? He's like, two old fashions for two old fashioned people. Like that's a great, great moment. And the manager comes over. And if you notice that the manager scene, he just listens. They're, they're going back and forth about, was it a Wednesday? Was it a Thursday? He's so charmed by them that he just listens. Then he buys them the drink. And then he says, Oh, we're going to stay here. And that everyone they come into contact with, they're like, they're like meteors or something. Everybody, including the viewer, I think is stunned into silence. That doesn't happen with the kids. It happens a little bit with George, um, Thomas Mitchell when she, when she lies to him and says, I'd like to go to the Idlewild home for the aged. And then, she even rubs it in. How about when she says, and here's another secret, you always were my favorite child. So when he walks back and looks in the mirror at himself and realizes what a, what a heel he is, he's kind of stunned into silence too. And that's why at the end, he's kind of fine with the fact that they only have a minute and a half to find him, that they're going to let him go to the train. So I just think that, I think that's a great thing that the film shows over and over is that like when you have depth of feeling that's that true and that's genuine, the, the, the natural reaction is just to shut up. The thing that I think that you're talking about that stuns people into silence is the is the earnestness with which they do life, um, because nobody else, you know, certainly the lady drinking next to them at the bar at the hotel is not drinking the same way that they're that they're drinking with the same appreciation. Right. They only get halfway through their old fashions and this lady's taking shots. Right. And, and so there's a difference between alcohol and alcohol. And it's the difference between people and man. That's like what that's really why my scene is. um I had trouble kind of finding my place in the movie until seeing the scene um, where with the sign that says man wanted. And that's really what is that is what is wanted from this film. And that's what they are. They transcend kind of just characters and they become they become man. They are yeah. people that kind of lay at the essence of all other experience to, to invoke a contemporary cliche. They're the best versions of themselves. They, they are that version of humanity that, that we can aspire to. And if somebody had, had, had led me into this film and said, you're going to, you've, you've rarely seen, um, admirable characters like this in a film. You think, was it about historical figures? Is it about some, you know, but it, no, it's about regular people, but, but you're right. Like, that's why that to tie into your moment about man wanted, 
Um, that's like when the, when the guy says to Bark, oh, you were a bookkeeper? And he says, I am a bookkeeper. Like in maintaining his dignity there, you're completely on his side. Well, and, and there's a thousand moments like that, though. Yeah. He makes a joke. He, he, he talking about the poem. She puts the flowers, a bookmark in the book on the poem that she likes. That doesn't make it a good poem. But the, the point of it is he says, or did the bank get the book, too? And she says they can take the book, but they can't take the poem. And that's the diff- that's the difference between just people or characters and man. It's the it's the thing that is the essence at the center of the thing that cannot be taken away or suspended. And that's also, I think, um, incident number I don't know seven hundred and twenty two, where I watched the film for the first time and went, "Oh my gosh!" Like in in the best way, like oh, like man, right? Leading up to the great ending. So let's talk about the ending in segment three. So welcome back. In part three, we talk about the ending or the title. Certainly, this film has a memorable ending. You know, Mike, before you mentioned the Peter Bogdanovich clip, it's one of the extras on the uh, Criterion version of the film. And he tells a very funny story in the beginning that he got to screen a bunch of films and was having dinner with Orson Welles. And he said to Orson Welles, have you ever seen Make Way for Tomorrow? And Orson Welles said, oh, my God, that's the saddest movie ever made. It could make a stone cry. What a great line. It could make a stone cry. And, you know, who are we to bicker with Orson Welles? I think he's 100% right about this. But let's talk about the ending and and why it could make a stone cry. What makes it so moving? So I assume that you had the same lump in your throat and the knot in your stomach as I did at the end. So what does that for you? It's part of the pressure of circumstance that makes the invisible visible or the unfelt felt. It, It doesn't necessarily mean that these two just started loving each other in a certain way. Um, just be, because they've been together, you know, 50 years or just because they're going to be separated. And that doesn't make any of this a lie. It means that a lot of that can, can lie dormant or be implicit. But what, but the circumstances force the implicit to become explicit. It's like they have an invisible force field around them. And it's only like when something hits it that you figure out where the edges are, or what the shape of it is. And that's, you know, that's, that's the circumstance of this movie. And I think it does such a beautiful job, um, turning the lights down on all the circumstances in their life so that you can see what's going on between the two of them. Absolutely crystal clear. And that's what forces me to get the lump in my throat. It's not necessarily the goodbye. It's what's going on between the two of them. Yeah. And I love what you said about implicit, that the circumstances make those things explicit. You know, um, you probably know the line from Emerson. He says in an essay somewhere about, about something, he says, the, the longer he, the louder he talked about his own honor, the faster we counted our spoons. In other words, the more people crow about something, the, the less genuine it seems. So you certainly get the get the feel from the film that these two, that Lucy and Bark don't go around all day, you know, uh, patting each other on the back and, and making cow eyes at each other and stuff. But when, when it counts, then they can be, then she will recite the poem. She does not recite that poem every day, but the circumstances make her recite it at that table in the restaurant. And that's what makes it so moving. That plus the performances. I mean, the, the, the actors, the performances in this film are so believable. Just their little things, in, in the way they speak to each other and the looks they give each other. I want to talk about this movie really quick in comparison with Youthful Love, which is what's, if I told you, if I just told you that a movie was a love story and I said, and I described it to you and then I said, now how old are the characters? You, you know, you would, you would assume that they um, were somewhere between 20 and 35. You know, Older when, than Romeo and Juliet, but certainly younger than Lucy and Bark. Bingo. The time, the time when love happens, or when, or when people can fall in love. This movie is the opposite end of the spectrum, which is to show you what, what's there when it's already happened. 
Um, and it's not necessarily the newness of the relationship, but it, it uses the, again, the cliche of the circumstance that they're not going to see each other anymore or that they were separated, reunited, and then going to separate again um, as a way of making things new and allowing the, the viewer to see the process of them becoming new. Now, again, you're, the, the beauty of the performance is, of course, they're actors and they just got to the set and they haven't been married for 50 years. But the brilliance of the illusion is real enough to, to invoke a true emotion. Yeah. There's a true emotional core at the center of this movie that is the truth, capital T, the way that they become a man, capital M. 100%. The, and, the, you know, as Picasso said, all art is a lie that helps us see the truth more clearly. And that's exactly the, the, the power of the illusion in this film is so strong that you can't help get caught up and, and feels the reason you react so strongly to them and the reason you react so strongly to her at the end of the, the film is because that illusion is so strong that you believe it. But it plays on some of the, the cliche of young romance, like that you brought up Romeo and Juliet. One of the things about Romeo and Juliet is that um, women mature faster than men at that age. Romeo comes in with a bunch of literary cliches. He thinks he knows what to say, but he runs into to Juliet, to whom Shakespeare has given all the good lines. All the things that cut to the actual essence of love come out of Juliet's mouth. That's the same. It's actually the same. Um, it's the same structure as when they're saying goodbye on the train platform. He, he does his best to kind of make half of a joke. He says, you know, I would, I would have done the same 50 years with you, you know, yeah. blah, blah, blah. And he, he means it, but it's like three sentences and it's about the most that he can say. But her, her part of that dialogue is what makes you cry because yeah. she manages to say what she wants to say. She says 50 years worth of it. Yeah, in one sense, absolutely. And you know, it's you know, go, you just reminded me earlier we were talking about you know who's who's the villain or who's the bad guy. When I when I thought about that more, I thought, well, maybe maybe the villain is time, right? Maybe that maybe that's the enemy in the film. But it's not because if it weren't for time, they wouldn't have that depth of feeling that they now share. They would have never gotten there. This movie would be silly if they were if they'd been dating for two weeks or married for two years. But the time is what gives them such depth of feeling and 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 that depth is transferred by Leo McCarry to us. There's no room in this movie, as you just said, for um a nice old, you know, mortgage lender to come at the end and say, No, actually you can keep your house, you know, or <laughs> or, or something like that. Or one of the kids to act in a way that's that's contrary to their own interests because they're just not gonna they're not gonna do it. Which is apparently what some of the pressure that Leo McCary had was to make the ending different. Where, you know, we've saved, we've saved the house. We can keep the fireplace and, and all those things. But he, he knew it had to end that way. Well, you know, I'll tell you one thing that, that this movie is not as famous as it deserves to be, which is a whole other, other thing, you know. It's a great pick. And I hope everybody sees it as, as soon as they can. We hope you enjoyed our conversation about this. It really will make a stone cry. Will it not, Mike? Absolutely. Thanks for listening. You can follow us on Twitter at 15min film, or you can email us at 15minutefilm at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.